On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. In our series, Who is Jesus? We began last week looking at this passage in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, which uh, scholars call the great Christology, perhaps one of the most important texts in the New Testament when it comes to who the Lord Jesus Christ is. So if you'll follow along as I read uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, beginning now in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all thrones were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, with regard to the context, and it's always important that we know the context, so you'll remember from last Sunday that there was a dangerous heresy that was threatening the Colossian church, and much of this heresy centered on the person of Jesus. It, it denied the deity of Christ. It denied the humanity of Christ. It also denied the sufficiency of Christ for salvation, Uh, Although it didn't completely deny Christ, it certainly did dethrone him, and it gave him a place, but but certainly not the supreme place. It it taught that Jesus was insufficient for salvation, that you must go beyond Jesus into the fullness of what they had to offer, this higher life, this this secret knowledge, because salvation, they said, required a, a superior, mystical, secret knowledge beyond that which the gospel could give. And so here in this passage, the Apostle Paul makes the argument that Jesus is the preeminent one, the supreme one, not only over our lives, but also over the entire universe, because Paul wants to stress to the Colossians that it is absolutely vital that they understand who Christ is. Because if we understand who Jesus really is, then we will know that he is the supreme and all-sufficient sovereign of the universe. And last week, Paul told us uh, a few things about Jesus. He told us, first of all, that Jesus is the preeminent one who has supremacy over all things, first of all, because of his relationship to God the Father. And Paul's point was that Jesus is the full, final, and complete revelation of God. He is God in human flesh. That was his claim, and that is a unanimous testimony of Scripture. Secondly, Paul told us that Jesus is the preeminent one because of his relationship to creation. Uh, uh, 
Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, meaning that he is, he is supreme, and, or he is referring to his supremacy and sovereignty over all of creation. Jesus is the sovereign Lord over creation because, Paul said, he is the creator. He said that there in verse 16. Jesus is the true God who created everything, visible and invisible, even the invisible spirit world. He is the creator of all. I mean, by, by him all things were created, but that's not all. Paul went on to tell us that Jesus is not only the creator, he is also the end, the goal, the reason for creation. He said that all things were created through him and for him in, in verse 16. I mean, all things, meaning everything in creation, including his people, were created through him and for him and to speak of him in order to bring him glory and honor and praise. And then he said in verse 17, and he, speaking of Jesus, is before all things. And that is a statement of the preexistence of Christ. And preexistence assumes eternality, and only God is eternal. And that was his point. Jesus is the eternal God himself, who has always existed as a part of the Godhead. And then he said, and in him, in Christ, all things hold together. So Jesus not only created everything that exists, he also sustains everything that exists. He sustains all things, guides all things, and he is in the process of bringing all things to their consummation in and for himself. And so Jesus is the preeminent one, the one who has supremacy over all things because of his relationship to God the Father and because of his relationship to creation. And now as we come to verse 18, we pick up here where we left off last week, Paul tells us that Jesus is the preeminent one, the one who has supremacy over all things because of his relationship to the church. Look at verse 18. And there Paul says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. In the Bible, there are a number of different metaphors used to describe the church. It's called a family, a flock, a bride, among other things. But perhaps the most profound metaphor, one having no Old Testament equivalent, is the one that Paul uses here, that of a body. And he says that Jesus is the head of the body. And the phrase, he is, should be understood to mean he himself, you know, he and no other. And so Paul is saying Jesus, he and no other, is the head of the body, the church. And the Greek word translated church means the called out ones, the, the assembly. And it refers here primarily to the, the universal body of Christ, that spiritual body comprised of all true believers from the day of Pentecost to the time of Christ's return to take his people into his presence. And so no denomination, no local church can claim to be the body of Christ because that body is composed of all true believers everywhere. Because when a person trusts Christ alone for salvation, they are immediately baptized by the Holy Spirit into this body and joined to Christ. And the baptism of the Spirit is not a post-conversion experience. Rather, this occurs the moment a person trusts in Christ alone for salvation. And so every true believer is a member of the spiritual body of the church, and Jesus Christ is the head. He's the head of the universal church in general, but he is also head of every local church in particular. 
So all the many and, and different, you know, varied local churches, the, the local expressions of his body, they all belong to him. And so if a local church dissolves or if a local church strays off course, the universal church will absolutely continue. It, it will persevere. Because when Jesus first promised to build his church, he assured us that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And I'm very thankful for that. And I have to keep reminding myself of this as I, has a, as I have a feeling that you do as well. Because when you look around at, at the state of the church, especially in our country, it's not a pretty sight. And I don't want to, to sound overly pessimistic, and I'm thankful that there are churches that, that are flourishing and are maintaining a faithful testimony to Jesus and an uncompromising commitment to his word. I'm thankful for those churches. But far too many have compromised with the culture and embraced worldly values and compromised the gospel to make it more palatable to the world. And so it would be easy to get discouraged if it weren't for this fact that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and he's going to build his church regardless. But what does it mean that Jesus is the head of the body? What does that mean? Well, the concept of Jesus as the head of the church is not used in the sense of the head of a company, uh, because the church is not a, a company, it's not an organization. Rather, the church is a living organism. It's a living organism that is inseparably joined to the living Christ. And so just as a body cannot live without a head, so the church cannot live, cannot be a true church if it is separated from Jesus who is at its head. And I mean the biblical Jesus. Jesus as he is revealed to us in Scripture. And just as the body is controlled from the brain, so Jesus controls every part of the church. It's he that gives it life and direction. Jesus energizes the body. As one man wrote, Jesus is the inspiring, ruling, guiding, combining, sustaining power of the church, the mainspring of its activity, the center of its unity, and the seat of its life. And Jesus, as, as the head, speaks of his ownership of the church and his sovereign ruling and authority over the church. And the church is called the body of Christ, isn't it? It's not called the body of Christians. Though it's made up of a body of Christians, the church is the body of Christ. And the reason for that is very simple. It's because the church belongs to him. It's his. Jesus is the head of the body. Ownership and authority are expressed by that. Jesus owns the church. He has authority over it. And so therefore, Jesus can be trusted to govern and direct and provide instruction and power for the life of his church if we will just look to him and draw from the resources that he has so graciously and generously supplied us with. And so you see, the, the head of the church is not in London or Rome or New York or Salt Lake City. The head of the church is not in any denominational headquarters of any church upon the face of the earth. The head of the church is in heaven. And consequently, we are responsible to heaven directly. I mean, there's only one head, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he controls, directs, 
and guides the true church, and it's through his church that he carries out his purposes for his people and the world. And so just as Jesus is sovereign over creation, Jesus is also sovereign over the church. And so what? What does that mean? Why is that important to us? Well, it's important for many reasons. Let me just mention one. As the sovereign over his church, Jesus has the absolute right to tell us how he is to be worshipped in the church. And therefore, true worship is based upon the instructions he has given us in the Bible. Well, what does true biblical worship look like? Well, Jesus commanded that true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And the Apostle Paul explained that we worship by the Spirit of God, meaning that true worship comes only from those who have been saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have the Holy Spirit living in their hearts or indwelling them. Worshiping in spirit also refers to having the proper heart attitude. You know, not simply uh, adhering to rites and rituals, not simply just going through the motions. And to worship in truth means to worship according to what God has revealed about himself in Scripture. And so in order for our worship to be biblical, it must abide within the teaching of Christ. I mean, true worship relies on the instructions given in the Bible. That's our basis for true worship. So how do we know what true worship is? We open our Bibles, see what God had to say. We look at the, the, the first century church and what they did in their worship services. And from Scripture and from, what the, uh, from the Scriptures, uh, which tell us what the early church did in their worship services, we can then determine what a truly biblical worship service consists of. Well, what did, what did worship, corporate worship consist of in the first century church? Prayers were offered. Songs and hymns and spiritual songs were sung to the glory of God. A collection was taken. The scriptures were read. Communion was observed. And the major ingredient of true biblical worship was the preaching and teaching of God's word. And of course, uh, in all of this, there was also the fellowship of believers. And so when the early church gathered for corporate worship, they, they, these are the things they did. And they worshiped God with great passion and with reverence and awe. I mean, this is the pattern of, of true worship in Scripture. Therefore, it's the pattern which the church today should follow. And we too should be worshiping God with great passion and with reverence and awe. And it seems like somehow we, we've lost that. We've certainly lost the reverence and awe. But we should be, when we gather together, we should be worshiping the God with passion and reverence and awe because we certainly do not want to convey to the world uh, the impression that the worship of God is something that is boring, something that is just a lifeless ritual. We should be passionate and reverent and, and in awe when we worship because we have been redeemed from sin. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 
And therefore, as the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, has given us a pattern to follow for worship. And we shouldn't mess with the pattern. You know, entertainment has no part of true biblical worship. One of the greatest lies the devil has ever told, sold to the church is that entertainment is what will attract people. Well, there's a biblical pattern for worship that we should follow. You know, we should heed the words of, of, of God to Moses. When in warning Moses of idolatry and worship, God said, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. And so Jesus is the head, the owner of, and, and the sovereign ruling authority over the church. And as such, he has the right to tell us how he is to be worshipped in his church. And the reason that Jesus is the supreme head of the church, if you look back at verse 18, Paul says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning. The word beginning means the first cause, the, the origin, the source. So Paul is telling us that Jesus is the beginning, he's the source, he, he's the origin. Well, the origin of what? a new creation, a new humanity, a new people. Headship belongs to Jesus because he is the beginning, he's the source, he's the power and originating cause of the life of the church and everything in connection with the church. I mean, the church was not the brilliant idea of the apostles or a group of first century Christians. Rather, the church is the creation of Jesus himself. The church had its origin in him, and today it has its operation in him. As the head of the church, Jesus supplies the church with life through his spirit. The church, local and universal, are, are completely dependent upon Jesus for the continuance of, of life. I mean, if a body doesn't hold fast to its head, it, it, it can hardly hope to survive, right? I mean, how long would you survive without a head? Not very long. Well, a church body that doesn't hold fast to its head can hardly hope to survive and be a, a true and genuine church. I mean, Jesus is the head of the body. He's the beginning, the origin, and the source. He, he created the universe and all that exists, and he is the origin, source, and redeemer of the church. Therefore, only he qualifies to be the ruling head in both areas. And the reason Jesus is the church's source of life is that he is also, if you look back at the verse, the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. Well, we saw that word firstborn in verse 15. Although firstborn can mean firstborn chronologically in Scripture, it refers primarily to being first in rank, position, or honor. And that's what it meant in verse 15. It means the same here. 
Paul is not saying that Jesus was the first person to be raised from the dead, because he was not. There were a number of people raised from the dead before Jesus, starting with Elijah raising the widow's child in 1 Kings 17. And there were others in the Old Testament. Jesus himself raised at least three people from the dead in the Gospels. But these resurrections were restorations to normal physical life, and all of these people later died again. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was the first to be raised with an immortal, incorruptible, glorified resurrection body, never to die again. And it is Jesus who will cause the resurrection of others. He became the first fruits or, or the guarantee of the future resurrection of all of those who belong to him. And so of all of those who have been raised from the dead or ever will be, Jesus is the highest in rank, the most important, the preeminent one, because God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and glorified and exalted him to the right hand of the majesty on high. And without his resurrection, there could be no resurrection for anyone else. But although we benefit from Christ's glorious resurrection, it was not solely for our benefit. There's another reason for this. Look back at verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That in everything he might be preeminent. You see, there was a goal in view. And it was so that Jesus, he and he alone, might be seen and known and glorified as preeminent in everything. And this is the only place in the New Testament where this word preeminent occurs. The Apostle John used a compound form of the word in, in 3 John verse 9 of an arrogant church leader named Diotrephes, who John said likes to put himself first. But this is the only place in the New Testament where this particular word occurs. And this word preeminent means to have first place. It speaks of a permanent position of priority and authority. God raised Jesus from the dead and placed him in authority over the church so that he, and only he, might be seen and recognized and glorified and exalted, worshipped and enjoyed as the sovereign Lord, the creator, the savior, and the head of the church, the one for whom all things were made and to whom all praise should be given. Only Jesus is preeminent. He alone has been exalted to the highest place, far above all. He, he has no rivals. Above him there is no other. As Paul said in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. According to the false teachers in Colossae, Jesus was not preeminent. Jesus did not have first place. He was, he was only one of many spirit beings, but not the supreme Son of God. He was not himself fully God. He was not the only way to God. 
And of course, many people today reject the idea that Jesus is the only way, and, and they assert that he's only one of many ways to God, or just a part of the way to God. But the Word of God emphatically states that Jesus Christ is the only way and the one and only name by which anyone can be saved. And this is because of who he is and what he has accomplished by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection. And the same eternal Word who became flesh and, and humbled himself is now exalted by God the Father to the highest place. And he's been given the name that's above every name. Jesus Christ is preeminent. And as one man said, this he must be, this he will be, and this he shall be. And as we read that in all things he might be preeminent, it is only right then that we should ask ourselves, does he have preeminence in my life? Does he have preeminence in, in your life? You know, does he have first place in everything in your life or, or my life? Does he have first place in our families? Is Jesus Christ the center and the priority of your family? Does he have first place in our marriages? Is Christ the priority in your marriage? Does he have first place in our jobs or our professions, in our ministries? in our love, in our worship. So much of worship today, including this, many of the songs that are sung in churches, is so man-centered and self-centered. This shouldn't be. Because Christ is to have preeminence in everything. He's to be preeminent in our worship. Why? Because it's all about him. So to what extent does your life and, and mine reflect the preeminence of Jesus? Do we live our daily lives in such a way that Jesus is seen to be preeminent? I mean, is there any doubt in the way that we use our time, our money, and our talents that Jesus is the source and the center of it all? That Jesus is our treasure? You know, does Jesus govern our lives in such a way that people may know that he is Lord? I wonder how visible the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ is in the, in the way that we talk and relate to others and, and fulfill our responsibilities at work, in the home, and in the church. Listen to what one man said. Resist the temptation to restrict the preeminence of Jesus to one day a week as if he were Lord and worthy of praise for only one hour on a Sunday morning. He is to be honored as preeminent not, over, not only over all things, but at all times, in every context, in every circumstance. Resist the temptation to isolate the preeminence of Jesus or to confine it to religious matters. He has been given preeminence in all things. Everything in all of life, both inside and outside the church, exists to make him look good. Not to make him good, for he is eternally and self-sufficiently good. 
but to reveal and disclose and enable all to see that he is, in fact, good and glorious and worthy of our wholehearted and exclusive devotion. I mean, what should this mean to us? Well, simply this, that in everything Jesus might have the preeminence, that is, the supremacy. And that word, everything, that extends Jesus being first to as wide a scope as is conceivable and then beyond. Only Jesus must have first place in everything, including everything in our lives. And so Paul has presented Jesus as the preeminent one who has supremacy over all things because of his relationship to God the Father, because of his relationship to creation, and because of his relationship to the church. He is the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, and thus he is preeminent in all things. And now in verses 19 to 20, Paul provides further explanation of what it means for Jesus to be preeminent. He's the preeminent one who has supremacy over all things because he is the fullness of God. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and I'll read verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The word for, for in him, introduces the reason why the Son, why Jesus is preeminent in all things. His preeminence or his supremacy is found not only in in who he is in his person, as declared in verses 15 to 18, but in God's purpose to provide salvation totally through the reconciling work of the Son. And Paul begins by saying in verse 19, and we'll go back and look at these verses. Paul begins by saying in verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The word God is not in the original text. And so the verse literally says, in him, in other words, that is in Jesus, so in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell. That's what it says literally. In him all the fullness was pleased to dwell. Well, how can fullness be pleased? Fullness is not a person. And only a person has conscious and willful intent. Only a person can be pleased to do something. And so both the New American Standard and the NIV translate the verse to indicate that God the Father is the subject of the verb. The New American Standard reads this way, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. And that's a much better translation than the ESV, at least here anyway. where it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, to dwell in Jesus. And fullness was a word that the false teachers in Colossae liked to use, and they used it a lot. They spoke about a spiritual fullness that that believers could attain only if they entered into the teachings and, and the ceremonies offered by the false teachers. But here the Apostle Paul says, no, no, Christ is the fullness 
You don't look anywhere else other than Jesus for the fullness. And Paul says, for in him, in Jesus, there are two things that the Father was pleased to do. Number one, in verse 19, that in Jesus all the fullness dwells. And then secondly, in verse 20, through Jesus to reconcile all things to himself. And so first of all, it was the Father's good pleasure, or it was the Father's will, for all the fullness to dwell in Christ. Now this raises a difficult question. And the difficult question here is what the fullness refers to. The word fullness is a Greek word uh, that means the sum total, fullness, the, the condition of being full or, or complete. The word dwell is a Greek word that means to dwell, reside, settle down. It indicates a, a permanent abode. So it's a simple reference to the fact that all fullness permanently resides in Jesus. But what does the fullness refer to? What does it mean? Well, many expositors understand the fullness to refer to the fullness of deity. That in Christ, the incarnate Son was the very fullness of God. In other words, all the qualities of God's divine essence, you know, the sum total of all the divine power and attributes as such, then this would be a powerful affirmation of the deity of Christ. And that may be what this means. But I don't think so. Because this has already been stated in this passage. And it doesn't seem to fit the immediate context of verse 20, where the subject is now the Son's redemptive work of reconciliation. And that being the case, other expositors believe this refers to something else, and here's why. In verse 19 it says, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. And because it says it was the Father's good pleasure or the Father's will for the fullness to dwell in Him, it does not seem that Paul is talking about the deity of Jesus. Why? Well, because Paul's already asserted that. He's going to do so again in chapter 2, verse 9. So there's no question that Paul is teaching the deity of Christ. But just not here in verse 19. Because Jesus is not divine because the Father wills it. Jesus uh, is divine because in his essence, Jesus is God. In his essence, Jesus is divine because he's God. The Father doesn't will the Son to be divine. The Son is divine because the Son is God, the second member of the Trinity. And he's always been God. One man said the divine essence dwelt in Christ unchangeably and not by the Father's consent or purpose. It is his own right and not by paternal pleasure. The highest place that heaven affords is the Son's, and it is his by right. Why? Because he is God. So the Father does not will the Son to be divine. Jesus is divine because he is God from all eternity. He was, is, and forever will be God. And so in the immediate context of verses 19 and 20, which speak of the Son's redemptive work and reconciliation, the fullness does not seem to mean the sum of all the divine power and attributes. Well, then what is the fullness? What is the fullness here that was the Father's pleasure or will for Jesus to have? 
Well, as other, expositor, other expositors have suggested, and I agree, it is all the fullness of saving grace and power which Paul has in mind. It is the fullness that belongs to the one who was to be the Savior and Redeemer, namely Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is that God was pleased that all saving grace and power permanently reside in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the following verses which outline Jesus' reconciling work expand and expound the fullness in its operation. And this is particularly significant since the false teachers in Colossae were teaching that Jesus' death or, or work of the cross was not sufficient for salvation or for sanctification, and that you also had to add some form of religious or self-denying works into the equation for salvation. And so when Paul speaks of the fullness here in verse 19, uh, I'm inclined to believe that he is talking about the fullness of saving grace and power that are in Jesus so that he was able to truly and fully redeem men and to save to the uttermost all who come to him by faith. And so what does this mean? It means this that there is nothing lacking in the salvation that Jesus came to provide for men through the gospel. There's nothing lacking. It means his finished work upon the cross is sufficient for salvation and for our sanctification, that there is absolutely nothing lacking or, or, nothing that, or, or anything that needs to be added. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus that he might accomplish our redemption. And Jesus has fulfilled all the responsibilities of his office as our Savior, Redeemer, and as the mediator of the covenant of grace. Jesus has fulfilled everything he told the Father he would do on our behalf. And then after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so in essence, the Apostle Paul is saying, you want the fullness is it fullness you're looking for? Then you've got all the fullness in the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't go looking anywhere else. Look to Jesus and to Him alone. So he's just stressing the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ's finished work. And Paul now tells us why the fullness dwells in Christ in verse 20. Let me read verse 19 along with it. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And so it pleased the Father that the fullness should dwell in Christ because through Him God was going to reconcile to Himself all things. All things. And the word translated here to reconcile is a, is a very intense form of the basic word reconcile, and, there, and there's a reason for that. This intensified form of the word means to change thoroughly, completely, in other words, totally reconcile. And Paul no doubt used this stronger form of the word here in Colossians because the false teachers were denying the possibility of being reconciled to God by Christ alone. And so Paul emphasizes here that, that there is total, complete, and full reconciliation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing's lacking. 
But why does man need to be reconciled to God? Why does there need to be reconciliation? Well, I mean, before, before sin came into the world, God and man experienced unbroken friendship, fellowship, and communion. But when the first man and woman sinned, that communion was interrupted. Man turned away from God. He was alienated from and hostile toward God. Romans 8 tells us that the natural mind of the unsaved sinner is hostile or at war with God. You know, the sinner may be sincere, religious, and even moral, but he is still at war with God as long as he is an unbeliever. He is at enmity with God. And so how can a holy God ever be reconciled with sinful man? I mean, can God lower his standards? Can God close his eyes to sin and, and compromise with man? I mean, can they strike a deal? No. There's no deals to be made when it comes to sin. I mean, God must be consistent with himself and maintain his own holy law. Someone says, well... Perhaps man could somehow please God. But by nature, man is separated from God, and by his deeds, he's alienated from God. The sinner is dead in trespasses and sin, and therefore is unable to do anything to save himself or to please God, or to make himself right with God. And so if there's going to be any reconciliation between man and God, the initiative and action must come from God. And it does. It does. In every reference to reconciliation between God and man in the New Testament, it is God who takes the initiative. Reconciliation to God is an explicitly one-sided process. He does virtually everything. And all we must do is respond in faith. But how can a holy God be reconciled with sinful man? Doesn't sin have to be dealt with? Yes, it does. All sin, absolutely every single sin, must and will be paid for. Well, then how can a holy God be reconciled with sinful man? Well, God's method of reconciliation involves something. Look back at verse 20. Those two little words, making peace. Paul says that Christ made peace between God and man. And I know we skipped a few words, we'll come back to them. Christ made peace between God and man. From the time that man rebelled in the garden, he has waged war against God. His sin and rebellion created a spiritual wall of separation. But through his death, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.14, Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, the, the wall of separation, and he has made peace and reconciliation between God and man possible. Well, how did he do that? Look at the last words of verse 20. Through the blood of his cross. Through the blood of his cross. Jesus had to die. And he had to die as a sacrifice. He had, he had to die on a cross. Blood had to be shed. 
But when we talk about the shedding of blood, it is extremely important for us to understand that in Scripture, the shedding of blood is an expression that means much, much more than merely bleeding. It refers to violent, sacrificial death. The shedding of blood speaks metaphorically of Jesus' sin-atoning death. Jesus had to die to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. Without his death, our redemption could not have been purchased by the mere shedding of his blood. The shedding of his blood was the visible manifestation of his life being poured out in sacrifice. But Jesus died not only as a sacrifice, he also died as our substitute. In other words, he died in our place. His death was not just sacrificial, it was substitutionary. He died in our place. He died the death that we deserve for our sin. Jesus took the place of sinners, dying a substitutionary, sin-atoning death that paid the full penalty for the sin of all who would ever believe. And this death satisfied God's holy justice and wrath. I mean, Jesus reconciled us in his body through death. And this means that whenever we put our faith and trust in Christ, we are declared justified. And the most immediate consequence of that is reconciliation. And reconciliation with God brings peace with God. When a sinner puts his faith in Christ, Jesus makes that person eternally at peace with God. In fact, Christ not only brings peace to the believer, but as Paul said in Ephesians 2.14, Christ himself is our peace. And so at the moment of salvation, the war between God and man is over. The hostilities have ceased. And through the finished work of Jesus, all the causes of enmity between man and God have been removed. We, we've been changed from foes to friends, reconciled by a miracle of grace through the blood of the cross. I mean, our maker, the one who gave us life, the one who owns our lives, the, the one to whom we are responsible for the life we live because he made us for himself, that one, Jesus Christ and no other, came into the world and gave himself for us to free us from our sins and to reconcile us to himself and to give us eternal life. But that's not all. God is also going to reconcile creation to himself. Because the verse says it was God's good pleasure to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. You see, because of the fall, the creation that God pronounced good at the very beginning, because of the fall and sin, that was marred. I mean, sin not only affected humankind, sin affected the entire universe. It affected all of creation. And so as a result, we live in a cursed earth, in a, in a cursed universe, and both are under the influence of Satan, who is both the god of this world and the prince of the power of the air. And Romans 8, 19-22 tells us, really, in, in sweeping terms, that man's sin has subjected the creation to futility. Why don't you turn there? Romans chapter 8, verses 19-22, to so you can look at this as I read it. 
Romans 8, 19 to 22, and here Paul tells us in, in very sweeping terms that man's sin subjected creation to futility. Notice, beginning in verse 19 of Romans 8, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Loved ones, that's more than poetry or, or prose. I mean, creation actually does groan. I mean, it's longing for the revealing, literally an uncovering or an unveiling, speaking of the time when Christ returns and the effects of the curse will be reversed. When Christ returns, creation is going to be brought back to its pristine condition like it was before the fall. And it will be that way in the millennium and then throughout the eternal state. And the Lord is going to make everything new. I mean, Jesus died to purify both heaven and earth. And Paul declares that God will reconcile the material world to himself, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, that have been defiled by sin. Now, a couple of things, or just one thing, obviously. This does not refer to Satan, to other fallen angels, or to unbelieving men. This is not teaching universal, uh, universalism, or salvation for anyone and everyone and all things. No, this is not referring to Satan, to fallen angels, or to unbelieving men. Their eternal doom is very, very clearly pronounced throughout Scripture. All created beings, even fallen angels, will eventually be compelled to bow to the Lord Jesus Christ, but this doesn't mean that they will be reconciled. But all who believe, but all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation are and will be reconciled to God. And the Father's method of reconciliation is through Jesus' sacrificial atoning death upon the cross. One commentator I read told about a husband and wife who had become estranged, and, and they chose to separate. And so they moved away, lived in different parts of the country. And then one day the husband happened to return to the city on business, and while he was there, he went out to the cemetery to the grave of their only son. And as he was standing by the grave, reminiscing, he heard a step behind him. And when he turned around, he saw his estranged wife. And the initial impulse of of both was to turn and walk away. But you see, they had a common-hearted interest in that grave. And so instead of turning away, they clasped hands over the grave of their son, and through that they, they were reconciled. They were reconciled by death. Well, Jesus bore all our sin, so that reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God could take place. He made peace by the blood of his cross, and he himself is our peace.
And as someone has said, whatever the answer to the problem of evil, this much is true. God took his own medicine. The cross is the ultimate evidence that there is no link. The love of God will refuse to go in effecting reconciliation. God did not spare his own son, but rather gave him up for us all. And so Paul says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It is God's good pleasure to give his children all things. The question is, have we responded to him? And the Word of God says that, that we've been separated, alienated from God, and that we deserve to be judged. That's what men deserve, all men. But through the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus, the wrath of God has been satisfied. The demands of his justice have been met. Uh, God's wrath has been satisfied for all who belong to him. And so when we, by faith, trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, and we, we repent as we, in other words, turn from the life we were living to God, we find in him the blessing and all of the benefits of reconciliation with God. And so that, that begs the question in this morning, have you trusted in Christ alone for salvation? I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking if you read your Bible. I'm not asking you if you're religious. Because uh, someone can do those things and, and not be a believer. Those things don't make you a Christian. Merely coming to church doesn't make anyone a Christian any more than uh, walking into a garage makes you a car. And so I'm asking, have you trusted in Christ alone for salvation? And probably the first evidence of that would be that you truly love God. You love Him. And not only will you love Him, you'll love His Word and you'll love His people, the church. You know, if you haven't trusted Christ alone for salvation... I mean, have you realized, if, if you're apart from Jesus, that you're at enmity with God? That God considers you an enemy? And not only that, he is your enemy. There's hostility. Have you ever considered that? Have you realized that there's no way that you can be indifferent to God? You can't just put them on the shelf or decide not to think about them and hope that it all goes away. You can't be indifferent to God because you're either for him or against him. You're either his or you are not. There's no in-between. And so again, back to the question, have you trusted in Christ alone for salvation? I mean, this is the question. Because on this hinges all of eternity. And you know, just let me address the young people here. Don't think that you'll have plenty of time that uh, you know, you'll, you'll, this is something you'll think about or consider when you get older. Why do you think you're going to get older? The tragedy of this last week just shows you that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. 
an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old. And then a man who uh, attended our church in the past and has recently been here uh, from time to time on vacation passes away. So why do you think you have time? Why do any of us think we have time? We're all a half a breath away from eternity. And so have you trusted Christ alone for salvation? And you know, a lot of times, you know, people say, well, you're just trying to scare people. Well, you know what? There's some things that you should absolutely tremble about and be afraid of. And one of them is dying in your sin. Because if you die in your sin, uh, you're not going to heaven. Because that is not man's default destination. Eternal hell is man's default destination. And if someone dies in their sin, that is where they will go. And it is forever. There's no such thing as purgatory. And as Charles Spurgeon said, speaking of hell, he said, and when you've been there for 10,000 years, you will never be any closer to getting out than you were the day you first went in. I don't know about you, but that's horrifying. You know, Jesus was God incarnate. He was love incarnate, kind, compassionate. But you know that Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in the Bible? Around 13 to 15% of all that he said had to do with hell. In fact, Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. Why? Well, because he, he knows the reality of that place. That's why he called people to repent and believe, you know, to go and sin no more. Because God is by nature a Savior. And if you're not a believer, God is through me this morning asking you, have you trusted in Christ alone for salvation? And if not, what are you waiting for? And then for those of us who are believers, I mean, do we truly, do we recognize and do we truly believe that Jesus is all-sufficient? And do we really believe that? Do we live like that? I mean, is Jesus all-sufficient? Is he preeminent? And Paul says there, there's no need to go anyplace else because of who Jesus is. And who is Jesus? That's the question we've been asking throughout this series. Who is Jesus? Well, as we've seen in this passage, Jesus is the preeminent one who has supremacy over all things. Why? Because he is the creator. He is the redeemer. He is the reconciler. He is the fullness. It's all in Jesus. And the Christian life is, is but a process of learning that truth and then consistently growing in our understanding of who Jesus is through his word, our, our own uh, private reading and study, and, and consistently sitting under the faithful teaching of God's word that we might come to know more about him so that we might know him in a deeper and more intimate way so that we might love him more and more and more. 
Because that's our great purpose in life. That's the first great commandment, isn't it? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why we exist. To love Him, to adore Him, to worship Him, to serve Him, to be useful to Him. It's all about Jesus. We begin with Jesus. And we end with Jesus. He is the Alpha and He is the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And there is no one else like Him. No one. Absolutely no one. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love.